Amen. I want you to take your Bible this morning, please, and turn with me to the book of Galatians. And we will begin reading in Galatians chapter 1 and verse number 1. If you're not familiar with the layout of your Bible, that's going to be um, about two-thirds or better towards the back. Uh, there is a table of contents in the front of your Bible that should help you find that. But barring that, we do have the words up on the screen for us in just a few minutes. But while you're turning, I've got to admit something to you that's a little bit hard to face uh, publicly. But that is to tell you that even though I am a pastor, one of my favorite hobbies is making fun of the signs from other churches. Anybody else ever do that? Uh, you ever drive by a church sign and, and you think, even if it's a good church and you know the people there, and you think, I hope somebody got fired for putting that out there. Like um, the worst, the absolute worst church sign ever, ever, period, to the end of time is a sign that says, and I know you've all seen it, it asks this question. It says, what's missing from CH-CH? And then the answer is, you are. Now, do you think that anybody's ever going to be in heaven and say, you know, I didn't care about Jesus, I didn't care about God, until I drove by this church sign that said, I was missing from church and now here I am. What that church sign is, is the Christian equivalent of the pickup line that says, baby, I want to rearrange the alphabet so you and I are together. That's exactly what that is. Sometimes, some of our single guys were thinking, hey, that might work. Um, sometimes church signs have on them like really passive, aggressive threats. You ever seen the church sign that says, you think it's hot here? <laughs> I heard about one church sign. It had to be the pastor who changed it. But the church sign said, some people need to use a glue stick instead of chapstick. <laughs> Amen, brother. Well, we are in church today, and our church has a church sign. Not just this million candle power LED supernova down the parking lot, but we have church signs all over our community. And our church signs have kind of the normal stuff you would expect about the pastor's name and our phone number and the service times. But our church signs also have this statement on them. They say it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. Now, what does that mean? Because this looks pretty religious to me. Like we've got our cross in the baptistry, we've got a baptistry. We're wearing our Sunday best. We've got a Christian flag here, for goodness sake. We just took up an offering and we're getting ready to read from the Bible, which is a religious book, right? So what are we trying to say when we say this is not about religion? And why is that important? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because some of y'all are really, really good at being religious. And you think that because you are religious, you don't really need much of Jesus. You're so good at being religious that you're self-reliant and maybe you're proud. You think you're better than other people who aren't as religious as you because you only read Amish romance novels. <laughs> You only vote for the secret Christians on American Idol. You are a good, moral person, and you look down on everybody else that doesn't measure up because you think that God is pleased with you because of your good works. Or maybe you're really, really bad at all of this. 
You hate coming to church. You think the preaching is boring. You think the clothes are uncomfortable and the people are weird and we make you sing. Where else do you go in life where they make you stand there and sing for 15 minutes? You don't know the words and it's just so weird. And so you wonder, could God ever be pleased with me? What if I'm not really good enough? It matters because most of us are to some degree connected to religion. And some of you have been inadvertently trained by religious thinking to believe that the way we really connect with God is by impressing Him with the things that we do. And see, we obey Him, we work hard, we try hard, and we do good, and then God is pleased with us. And so we see God as a rule giver and a slave driver, but we don't see God as somebody to enjoy in a relationship. Today we're going to begin studying for the next few weeks the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul's letter to this church in Galatia, where he simply lays out the case that the story of Jesus is not about religion. And today we're going to see in the beginning of this book specifically that any message that claims to be Christian, any message, even if it has the name Jesus attached to it, if that message is more about what you do for God than it is what God has done for you, then that message is not the gospel. As Paul shows us the difference between true and false gospel. So we're going to read Galatians chapter 1 now. Normally we stand as we read the Word of God. I'm not going to ask you to do that today because we're going to read all the way to chapter 2 and verse 14. So we're going to read a lot today. And so uh, I don't want anybody you know, passing out on us this morning just yet. Galatians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God and our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly removed and deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, 
But I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up again because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That's a good place to stop today. Galatians is a book written, as you can see in the very first word of the book, by the Apostle Paul. And like many of the Apostle Paul's letters, it's written to a church that he loves very deeply, but a church that is facing some degree of turmoil. And so this is a book, like a lot of Paul's letters, that is filled with doctrinal insights, it's filled with personal recollections, and it's a book that's filled with some pastoral, uh, pastoral practical advice. But as you really begin to dig in and pay attention to the language Paul uses, it's clear that Paul's kind of writing from a disturbed, even an aggravated heart. He's writing with a sense of urgency. And you can see that in verses 1 and 2 and 3, because usually Paul will come out and say, I thank God for you, I'm grateful for you, man, we've had some good times together, haven't we? Paul skips all the small talk here in Galatians, and he jumps right into the point. He says in verse number 6 of chapter 1 that he's writing from a place of astonishment. He is shocked at what's happening in Galatia. He's even angry at what's happening. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 11, Paul even says that he's writing this book with his own hand in large letters. It's very likely that the Apostle Paul probably had very bad eyesight and some vision problems. And so a lot of times when he would write, he would have somebody else actually do the writing for him. But Paul says this is so important that he has to get his own pen out at great personal pain and write to these people in his own handwriting because the situation is so disastrous. What's the problem in the church of Galatia that has Paul so anxious? Well, he says in verse number 6 that they are deserting Christ. And they are drifting towards another gospel. He says it this way in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 1. He says that they are being bewitched. 
Somebody has come into the church of Galatia and they have cast a spell on these new Christians and they are being deceived as they are drifting away from the message of Christ crucified for their sins. So, what was that deception? You have to understand this right up front to understand this book. It's probably not a threat that you worry about much. One, we're really not concerned about in our church today. And it's the question of how Jewish do you have to be before you can be a Christian? I'm sure that hasn't crossed your mind today, has it? I'm sure that as we read these verses a minute ago, that's the most that you've heard the word circumcision in decades, isn't it? There are conflicts here in place that we may not necessarily understand. I did not care at all if my ego waffles were kosher this morning. It did not matter to me. But it mattered to these people. Here's why it mattered. And it, it makes some sense if you sit down and think about it. For centuries, God had basically limited His interactions with humanity and His revelations with humanity to the Jewish people, right? In the Old Testament. And the Jewish scriptures that God gave were about Jewish life. They were about Jewish customs. They promised a Jewish Messiah who would come and give the Jewish people a very specific kind of future. When Jesus, that Messiah, comes, He comes as a Jew. The first people that follow Jesus, some of whom are mentioned here, Peter, James, and John... They were Jews. When the church, the followers of Jesus, as it starts to expand, the first people to believe that message were Jews in Jewish places. And so what happens when people who have no connection to Judaism, like the Galatians, what happens when they start to believe that Jesus is their Savior? What happens when they start to put their faith in this Jewish Messiah? There was a group of people who came into churches, like the church of Galatia, who were teaching this. And here's the issue that Paul's dealing with. They were saying to those Christians, it's good that you believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. You better believe in Jesus. But if you really want to be a Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. You've got to, if you're a man, you have to be circumcised. If you want to experience the fullness of the blessings of God, you've got to embrace the Old Testament law. You've got to embrace our customs. You have to become like us to really become fully Christian, which means that the Gentile believers in the church of Galatia were having to answer this question. And this is the question that the book of Galatians forces on you today. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough to save you? Or do we need to add our traditions to it? Do we need to add our rituals to it? Do we need to add our best efforts to us? Paul hears of this conflict and he begins to write. And Paul is so anxious to get to the point that he doesn't even get to the point before he gets to the point. Because in verse number 4, right out of the gate, he's starting to write and he says to them what he said a lot of times, grace to you and peace to you from God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil world. That is the gospel message. That God gave Jesus to deliver us. And I really, really like the way the NIV translates that word deliver because it translates it as the word rescue. And the word deliver and rescue mean the same thing. But that word really gets the emphasis right. That the gospel is not a message of my doing things for God. The gospel is a divine rescue operation where God sends Jesus to step into our mess and to get us out of it. So that the Christian message, Paul says, before he says anything, it is not a message of self-improvement. It is not rules we follow. It is not traditions we keep. The Christian message is a message of God rescuing sinners. When we were on vacation a couple weeks ago at the beach, I was in the ocean one morning. I think it was a Tuesday. And I'm out there, you know, doing my thing. And I noticed 
20-some yards deeper than me out in the ocean. There was a couple of young guys, looked like teenage guys. And I looked at them and I thought, you know, they're just out too far and out too deep. That's not safe. And then I thought to myself, when did I get so old? Like, <laughs> when, did, when did I turn into my grandmother, you know? But then I noticed another 20 yards further than that, that there was a lady, what looked to me like a teenage girl, a young lady, out further than them. And I thought, that really isn't safe. So I just kind of said, I'm going to watch this unfold. And I thought that all of them were together, but then I quickly became to under, came to understand that the woman was in trouble. She was in over her head, and those guys were trying to get to her. And then they couldn't get to her, and so they were waving for help because they were all in trouble. And then, being the brave and courageous pastor that I am, I went back to shore and told somebody to call 911. <laughs> I was look. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to pray my way out of emergency. <laughs> and so I watched all this transpire. Somebody called 911 on, the, on this lady in this situation. The police literally drove up to the beach. Their sirens are blazing. They've got their guns on their hip like they're going to shoot the ocean or something, you know. <laughs> but then finally, after, after a few minutes, and it probably wasn't even that long, this dude comes running up the beach. He's wearing red shorts. He is a walking melanoma because he's been out in the sun so much. His hair is just blonde mop. He looked like a character off Sesame Street. And he had this big, long surfboard that was bright yellow. And in bright red letters, on the underside of that surfboard was the word lifeguard. And that dude threw that surfboard out in the ocean, jumped on it, and literally in seconds he was out to where that woman was. And he took that woman, he made her problem, his responsibility, and he got her to safety. He rescued that woman. What Paul is saying about the gospel is that this is how we need to understand it. That it is a rescue mission where God made our problem His responsibility. He got in the mess with us, wrapped His arms around us, and took us to safety. But if we believe that at any point we are adding our effort to what He did, then we ruin the whole thing. That's Paul's point in these opening chapters of Galatians, as he highlights the difference between true and false gospel. So we're going to look at these verses together today, as Paul makes this contrast. And there are three principles that I want us to understand today to make sure that we have really, really grasped that the gospel is how God saves us. Not how we save ourselves. Not how we help Him save us but how He saves us. Here's the first principle I want to give you. Paul gives it to us in verses 6 through 12. As he says, the gospel message, it is for us, but it is not from us. The gospel message is for us, but it is not from us. So he begins in verse number 6 right away by expressing his shock that the Galatians have been deceived, that they're walking away into this twisted form of Judaism and Christianity. Then he's going to pronounce a curse on them. Then he asks in verse 10 this very pointy question. He says, am I trying to please men or trying to please God? And what Paul's getting at in these verses really is this simple idea that this is not a message that anybody would invent. That the gospel message is not a message that any man would come up with. And that's what the false teachers in Galatians were saying about Paul. They are saying, quite literally, we are preaching the true gospel. We are accurately portraying Jesus and what he expects to you. And Paul's lying. Paul's making this up. Don't trust him. Don't believe him. Paul says, if you think about what I've told you, he says nobody would ever invent this message. Why? Because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, rightly understood, doesn't give you credit for anything. And it is totally 
antithetical to our human nature to invent or to believe a message where we can't get any credit, where we can't get any praise, because human nature likes to prove itself. We like to work hard, and we like to get the trophy, and we like to give the applause. Human nature loves that message. You know why? Because we do not want to think of ourselves as a drowning lady. We want to be the lifeguard. We don't want to be the person who has nothing to contribute. We want to be the person who saves the day. That's why when I was a little kid and I would be in my grandparents' front yard, standing under their maple tree, throwing the baseball up and swinging it, I wasn't Jesse Carr and Mary in North Carolina swinging a ball bat. I was playing for the Braves in the bottom of the ninth of the World Series, Game 7. Bases are loaded full count. This is it. And, of course, no matter how many strikes there were, eventually... I'd get it over the fence and I would be the hero. Why? Because that's our nature, isn't it? Our nature is to be praised. Our nature is to be success. Man would never invent this message because this message says that we are so hopelessly, helplessly lost without Jesus that we can contribute nothing to Him but our own sin. That we can do nothing in our own power but drown. We can do nothing in our own power but drift further and further away from God. We have no strength. We have no effort. We have nothing to stand on. And so Paul is telling us that the gospel of the grace of God is a message that reminds all of us that God does not save us because we deserve it. He saves us because we need it. And Paul said nobody would ever invent that message. He would, nobody would ever come up with that. And then he gives this interesting turn of phrase in verses 6 and 7. He says, you're drifting to another gospel. Then he said, which is not another gospel. Now, what, is, what does that mean? He said, you're, you're falling prey to another gospel, which is another gospel. What does that mean? He's saying that if we change the gospel message to say that it is my works, my effort, my prayers, my church attendance, my tithing, my being good, my whatever, plus Jesus, then we are robbing the gospel message of its unique nature. Why? Because in content, the gospel message is that Christ died on the cross to save sinners and rose again to save those who would believe. But in meaning, the word gospel means good news. It is a good announcement. It is a good message. And as soon as the gospel message is transformed into do a little bit more, try a little bit harder, give it a little bit more effort, you need just a tad bit more willpower, then the gospel is no longer good news. The gospel is good advice. And Paul says, as soon as you've done that, you don't have the gospel anymore because it's not good news. It's not about what God has done for you. It's about what you have to do for God. And Paul said that is really no different than coming along to a drowning person and offering them swimming lessons. And that's what religion always does. It comes to people who are drowning in their sin and drowning in their guilt and drowning in their shame. And it swims out there like a lifeguard and says, you need to try a little bit harder. You're almost there. You can make it. You can do it. You can be strong enough. You can be good enough. You're headed in the right direction. And if you just put in that last bit of effort, you can make it. Paul said that is not the gospel. But it may be that that's right where some of you live today. Thinking that some of this depends on you. And it's about your strength and it's about your effort. And it's about how hard you can fight your sinful desires. And it's about how much you can please God by doing good things around the church. You think, that's what all this is really about. And so you always live in this tension of, just frankly, where you're exhausted. Like a drowning person who's trying to swim, you find out very quickly that you just don't have the strength for it. And you find out that you are not going to make it. Please listen to me today. Jesus did not come to give you swimming lessons. He came to save you. 
He jumped into your problem to rescue you, not to tell you, just to do a little bit more. You're almost there. Which is why Paul makes this curse, beginning in verses 8, that he repeats in verse number 9. He, he makes this curse, and he says, if I or an angel, if anybody comes and preaches a message to you that says, you need to contribute to your own salvation, Paul says, let them be cursed. Now, a couple things to remember here. Number one, Paul is not cussing. Okay? Cussing is what you do when you watch football. All right? This is a... You ever heard the old thing about how preachers preach about the sins they're really guilty of? Paul, <laughs> Paul is not cussing. Paul is cursing. He's pronouncing a legitimate biblical curse. He's saying that if anybody preaches another gospel, let them be damned. That's what he's saying. Okay? It's strong language. He says to us, if the megachurch pastor comes with his $300 highlights in his hair and he preaches to you a gospel that says you need to improve your life by doing more, save yourself by trying harder, Paul said, let that joker go to hell. And if your meemaw comes to you telling you that you need to be religious and that you need to be better and that you need to earn your way to God by doing more for yourself, Paul said, let her be cursed too. And Paul even says it about himself, doesn't he? He said, if I come preaching a different message, let me be cursed. If Pastor Jesse preaches a message, then Pastor Jesse deserves to be cursed. Why? Because false gospels always produce death. What are you going to do when you come and offer swimming lessons to the drowning lady? You're going to kill her. Because you're going to try and convince her that the undertow is not that bad. That she's closer to shore than she thinks. Look, lady, you can see your condo. It's just right there. You're almost there. You can make it. Paul says that's what religion will empower us to do. It will always empower us to underestimate how bad our sin is and to overestimate our strength to handle it. It will cause us to overestimate our own righteousness and underestimate the righteousness of God to believe that we really can please Him by how hard we are working down here and by all that we are doing. Paul said that message will kill you. And it will produce death in you as it produces doubt and it produces fear and it produces guilt. And that's right where some of you are today because you have somehow absorbed from the church this message that you really, really need to be a good person and then Jesus will save you. Jesus did not come to save good people because there ain't no good people to save. Jesus came to save the drowning. He came to save the dying. He came to rescue the lost. He came to get us when we were at our worst. But friend, if your hope is tied to your effort, you are sunk. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus demonstrates his love towards us when Paul said in Romans 5, 8, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thank God that verse does not say that when we were good Baptists, Jesus died for us. It does not say when we were good people, when we were good wives and good husbands, but it says when we were sinners, that's who Jesus came to save. He says in John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he came and he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It says in Romans 10, 13, that whoever would call on the name of the Lord would be saved. Paul said this is the message of the gospel, and it is good news, and God forbid we change one detail of it to present to you the bad news of here's what you have to do now. Paul says this is good news. Don't change it. But then he gives us the second principle as he explores the difference between true and false gospels. And it really is from verse 11 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 10 of chapter 2. As Paul recounts the story of his life that spans several decades, it's this principle, and that is that ultimately the gospel will prove itself. Maybe we could say it this way. The gospel will take care of itself. It will defend itself. 
And so Paul is going to talk about how this is true in his life. As he talks about the transformation that occurred. And what Paul's doing in these verses is simply saying to these Galatians and to the false teachers, listen, I'm not the kind of person that's going to make this message up. Why? Because before he met Jesus, Paul was a religious person. And he goes through that story. You see it in verse number 13. You heard of my former life in Judaism. What was Paul's story like before he met Jesus? It was Judaism. It was not prison and drug abuse and insanity. It was Judaism. It was religion, right? Then he says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. And Paul would actually give more detail about his resume in Philippians chapter 3. And verse number four, he would say there, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. In other words, if you think you can swim and make it on your own, Paul said, I was a better swimmer and I was better trained. He said, I was the Michael Phelps of religion. He said, I have more. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrew. He said, I was the Jewish Jew that ever Jewed. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul said, I went out of high school right into the pros. He said, I was as good as you got. And yet, Paul also admits in these verses that his religion made him a very violent person. Do you see that in the text? He said in verse 13, I persecuted the church of God. And he uses the word violently. He said, all of my passion, I thought, for God morphed and metastasized into this passion to hurt other people who did not believe the way that I believed. If you want a glimpse of what religion does to human nature, that's exactly right. And I'm going to tell you, I noticed this happening to me a couple of weeks ago. I was, I think I was going home from church one day, and I was listening to this podcast on the radio of a very well-known financial advisor. And he was giving all this advice about paying off your debt, how if you want to have status, if you want to really live, if you want to be free, you've got to pay off your debt. And everything he said probably was true. And as he talked and talked and talked, man, I felt terrible. Because I hadn't always made, you know, the best decisions. You know, I've bought stuff I didn't need and put it on credit, just like everybody else in the known universe has. And I felt terrible about myself. And then all of a sudden, in the next segment, he switched gears to where he was just chewing out people that use credit cards to get airline miles. And he was talking about how dumb it is and how much money they're wasting and how stupid they are. He did everything but cuss these people. He said things about these people that I wouldn't say to your dog. I mean, it was terrible. You know what happened to me? What happened to me was I started to think to myself, you know what? Those people really are dumb. You know why? Because I don't have a credit card that gives me airline miles. And I thought, I can't believe, I can't believe people be so stupid as to live that way. I mean, golly, why can't they be more reasonable and responsible and more fiscally conservative like I am? You know what that is? That's human nature that wants to judge people who are not like us. And Paul said that was so much a part of my heart that I was actually destroying people who believe differently than I am. And he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the King James, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. Here he says, I'm the foremost. He said, when you come to sin, he said, I'm as bad as it got. So here's what Paul says about himself before Jesus. And you better get this. You better get this or you're not going to understand Paul or the logic of the Bible. Paul said, I was as good as you could be. And I was as bad as it gets. So how in the world does that make any sense? Because Paul's life teaches us that nobody is so bad they can't be saved. 
But nobody is so good they don't need to be saved. On the one hand, Paul is so good that he should not need to be rescued. But on the other hand, he's so bad that he has to be rescued. Friend, the gospel is for all of us, whether we are good, whether we are bad, whether we are religious, whether we were irreligious, whether we feel like we are strong swimmers and able to manage, whether we are drowning, taking in water for the last time. Even if you're here today and you're just confused about all of it, the gospel is for you. Paul said, I'm the one who needed it. As good as I was, I needed the gospel. But in spite of how bad I was, I needed to be rescued. So Paul has shown in chapter 1, that religion was not enough to save him. But now he has to get to the question before the Galatians, and that is this question, is Jesus enough to save them? And what he does beginning in chapter 2 is he goes to this event called the Jerusalem Council. You can read about the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. At the Jerusalem Council, all of the leaders and the pastors and the elders and the apostles and everybody in Jerusalem, they go to Jerusalem and the church to answer this question, does somebody need to be circumcised before they can really be a Christian? And Paul's going to go not because he thinks he's wrong, but because he wants to ensure the church doesn't go wrong. And you can tell by the way he writes here, he's not going to impress any of them. But he's going to defend the truth of the gospel so that the people converted under his ministry are not falling back into any kind of slavery. And Paul has one ace up his sleeve. And the ace up his sleeve is not a, like a convincing theological argument. The ace up his sleeve is this man by the name of Titus. Now, shameless plug, Titus would go on after this to become a pastor. And Paul wrote a letter to Titus. And we are studying that letter on Sunday nights. And if you want to hear about Titus, come back tonight. We're going to talk about what God expects of men in the church. And it's going to be rough. And some of y'all ain't man enough to handle it. But ladies, you're going to have a good time. Amen? So come and amen me. <laughs> but why is Titus such a convincing argument? Here's why. Titus was not Jewish. He was not raised in synagogue. He was not circumcised. He ate bacon. Amen. And when Paul preaches... Titus, here's the gospel. Titus believes. Titus is filled with the Spirit. Titus is saved with no connection to Judaism at all. And so Paul takes him before all these people who said, you've got to be Jewish, you've got to be circumcised, you've got to keep the law, Moses this and, and synagogue that. And Paul said, there's living, breathing proof that God accepts people on the basis of Christ and nothing more and nothing less. And then he says in these verses that the argument was solid and sound and nobody said a word against it. Because it proved that Jesus is enough. So put yourself in the mind of these Jews. Here's this Gentile who's unclean. Here's this Gentile that doesn't look like you. He doesn't talk like you. He doesn't value the things that you valued. He doesn't have your pedigree. He doesn't have your history. He is, as the Gentiles would say, an unclean dog. But because of Jesus, he has the same seat at the table that people like Peter and James and John had who actually knew Jesus in their lives. Why? Because Jesus is enough. We don't need anything more other than Him. If we've got Him, it does not matter what kind of record we brought Him before we met Him. He does away with all of it. So that the record is not what matters. What matters is Jesus. And Paul says, in these verses, no matter how good we are, we need Christ to be accepted. Because Jesus is enough. And no matter how bad we are, we can be accepted with Jesus. Because Jesus is enough. Religion says there's always more to do. Jesus said, I am enough. I am enough. So the gospel proves itself. But here's the last principle we need to look at today. And this may be the most important for some of you this morning. And that's in verses 11 through 14. It's this principle. Christians need the gospel too. 
Paul goes to Jerusalem. He fights it out with the people there. But then there's another issue that's going to arise. There's somebody that Paul would consider a friend, or at least that you would consider a hero of the Bible. He calls him Cephas. You know him better as Simon Peter, St. Peter. He's the guy at the pearly gates going to let us in, right? Well, Peter apparently had the custom of eating lunch, supper, breakfast, whatever. He would eat with anybody, anytime. Paul says that in verse number 12. And the backstory is that the Jewish people didn't do that. Jewish people often would not eat with Gentiles because you would make them unclean. Even today in the nation of Israel, there's some degree of segregation that exists because you could make them ceremonially unclean if you, as a Gentile, are around them. So Peter had the habit of, man, they eat with the Gentiles. Look, as a preacher, you know, this is the way Peter rolled. You want to eat? We'll go eat. It don't matter who, it don't matter where. As long as we're going to get to eat, Peter said, bless God, I'm going to be there. But, but, when a group of people who are coming from this circumcision party, when the people who were all about their Jewish pedigree, when they came into town, Peter had to back away from, from the Gentiles because he wanted to impress the Jews. He had to look Jewish around the Jews, but he could let his, let his guard down and be comfortable around all those Gentile dogs. Paul is going to confront him. And here's what is so incredible about what Paul says in verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that's when Paul is going to rebuke him. As he sees that Peter is not being faithful to the gospel. So what's the problem? Here's the problem. Is Peter a racist? I mean, there may be some prejudice in his heart, but that's not really the issue. Was he being mean? No. The issue was that Peter was motivated by fear. Peter did not want certain powerful religious people to think bad about him. What religion teaches us to do, religion teaches us to work for the approval of God. Now, I'm going to tell you this today. You are made to have the approval of God. You are made to live in a relationship with God where God says, I am pleased with you. And that declaration from him should drive out all fear and anxiety, and it should drive out all of our lack of peace and lack of joy. But what religion says is you earn that approval by God by doing good stuff. And if we can't quite get to the point where we feel like we have God's approval, the next quickest, easiest, and best substitute is the approval of other people who are religious and who are good, who look like they know God and who look like they have God's approval. And this theme is huge in the book of Galatians because there are all kinds of people that their motive deep down secretly for what they're teaching and preaching is that they want to be accepted by other people. In fact, Paul would say this in Galatians 6, 12. He says that these false teachers are preaching this mixed up gospel of salvation by circumcision plus Jesus. He says they want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see what Paul said? He said, here's the motive for false teachers. They just want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to be welcomed. And that's Peter's motive here. That's his problem. He's afraid of what people are going to say about him and what they're going to think about him. Well, what's the solution? The solution is that Paul comes to Peter, and what does he do? He gives the gospel to him. He does not come to Peter, and he does not say to him, Now, Peter, you know the rule that says we shouldn't be racist. And the Bible does say that kind of thing. He does not come to Peter and say, Now, Peter, you know you shouldn't be a coward. You're better than that, man. What's wrong with you? But he comes to him and he says, Peter, your problem is a failure to apprehend the gospel at this point in your life. 
Does that mean Peter was lost and he wasn't saved? No. What it does mean that Peter, like every one of us, has pockets of darkness in our heart where the light of the gospel has not illuminated us and our behavior has not been changed because our heart has not been changed because we have not really grasped the fullness of the gospel of God. So, why is that important? Here's why it's important. Because the book of Galatians... That is all about the gospel. It's all about the cross. It's all about how we are declared righteous through Jesus. This book was not written to crackheads. It was written to Christians. This is a book written to a church. This is a book written to people who want to please God, who want to walk with Him, and who, to some degree, want to know Him. And because they're disconnected from the gospel, these Christians are arrogant. And they're looking down on one another because some aren't as good as we are. And they're jealous of those who are more impressive. And they're filled with doubt, wondering if they measure up. What's the solution to these messed up Christians? Y'all need to try harder? You need to do better? We need to get us some rules in place? The solution is the gospel. The solution is look to the cross. The solution is see that God in love for you hung His Son on a cross to bring you to Himself. They didn't need rules. They need to have their heart changed by the gospel. Friends, the Christian message and the Christian life is not that we believe the gospel and then we move on to getting down to business living for Jesus. The Christian life is not growing up away from the gospel. The Christian life is growing into deeper into the gospel. D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, said this about Paul and it illuminates this point. He said, he cannot long talk about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or the Christian doctrine of anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He is cross-centered. And friend, that's what the message of the Bible would say to you. If your marriage is in trouble, what, what, what do we do for our marriage? Repent and believe the gospel. So I, I need financial help. My, my, my money's out of control. Down deep enough, that is a gospel issue. I just can't learn to forgive those people who are so ugly to me and to my family. I just can't move past it. You need to believe the gospel. Ephesians 4.32. Forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So I just don't know where my life's headed. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. You need to believe the gospel. The gospel touches every area of life. And this is a massive shift in the way most of us think. Because Paul is not trying to motivate Peter by guilt. He's trying to motivate Peter by grace. And I think about this, and I think about the kind of preaching that I heard a lot of times when I was growing up from different people. The go-to for preachers in the mountains of North Carolina, here's how we try to motivate people to do what they need to do. What we do is we get everybody together in a revival or a camp meeting, and we say, you need to do this, A, B, C, X, Y, and Z, and if you don't, God's going to kill your kids. If you don't, you're going to be killed in a car. Like if you don't, God's going to take your kids. So here's what you do. You serve God, not because He's really good, but you serve God because you don't want anything to happen to your kids. You know what that is? That's manipulation using guilt. God does not want you to be motivated by guilt. He wants you to be motivated by grace. And all religion can ever offer you is guilt. It says, you've got to do this, or what if? It says you've got to do this or you're not going to measure up. It says you've got to be better or somebody's going to look down on you. You've got to do this because it's on your shoulders to keep the church going and to keep things moving forward. The gospel says that we have been reconciled to God, Romans 5.10, by the death of His Son and that our hearts are being changed as we believe and embrace that message more and more and as we realize how God has loved us and realize what He's done for us, then every area of our life is affected. This is God's purpose for your life. God's purpose for your life is not to be somebody who's living in guilt 
afraid of what God might do. God's purpose is for you to be living in joy and peace, knowing what Christ has done. And so that you are doing what is right from a heart motivated by the gospel. Now, here's what I would ask you today. We've covered a lot of ground. A lot of ground. My question to you today, first of all, is this. Are you drowning? Are you drowning? If somebody's in the ocean and the undertow's got them, I don't know at what point they move from swimming and struggling to drowning. But maybe some of you understand that in your relationship with God today, you are drowning because you cannot overcome your sin. You can't overcome your past. You cannot overcome the guilt and the doubt that you fear. And the only thing you know to do is what any of us would do if we were actually drowning. You're just trying harder. And it could be today that you are in church this morning just because you're trying harder. You're just trying harder. And you think maybe you can get your foot on solid ground. You'll be okay. Please don't overestimate your strength. And please don't underestimate the righteousness of God. There is salvation for drowning people. I don't have any hope today at all for good people. I have nothing to tell you. But if you are drowning, I've got good news. And that is we have a Savior who would die so that you could live. And if you would believe in Him, He would rescue you. I wonder today how many of you are uh, Christians, legitimately, legitimately like Peter at the end of this text. And you know the right things to do, but all you've got is guilt. That's all you've got. And maybe you want to come and say, Lord, motivate me to do what's right out of grace. I want to worship you, not because i got to come to church because I don't want somebody to judge me, but I want to come and worship you because you're worthy of it, because of Jesus. I don't want to give my tithes so that you will bless my home financially. I want to give because you have given everything in Christ. I don't want to just do my part so the church doesn't shut down and close its doors. I want to do my part because Jesus gave everything for me. Would it be something to be motivated by gratitude and grace and not by guilt? We're standing together today. Shannon's going to come and play softly and Kelly's going to come and lead us in a hymn of invitation. And before we sing, I would like for just every head bowed and every eye closed. I don't want anybody looking around. I don't want anybody trying to figure out who's doing what or what's happening or any of that stuff. I just want to give you an opportunity in this service to be honest. Because almost all of us have been in church long enough to know that church is a great place to hear sermons about being honest and a hard place to actually be honest, isn't it? So I want to give you a space just to be honest. And I want to pray for you. Would you, first of all, maybe just raise your hand today if you say, Brother Jesse, I feel like I am drowning. I feel like I have sin. I feel like I can't overcome it. I have guilt that I can't manage. I feel like I am drowning. And the only thing I know to do is to try harder. Would you put your hand up? I want to pray for you. And I see some hands going up today. That's a hard thing to admit, to admit we're out of control, to admit we need help, to admit that we are not the hero of our own story and we need somebody else to save us. That's a hard thing to admit. But I'm going to give you a second. Would you admit that's true about me today? Would you put your hand up and say, I need a Savior? Some of you are here like the Galatians, like Peter. You know Jesus. You've been saved. And you 
want to honor Him and want to please Him. But man, in your heart, you're so confused. And you find yourself looking down on other people. You find yourself looking down on yourself, filled with guilt and doubt. Maybe it would be good for you to raise your hand today and say, I want my heart to be changed by the gospel. I want the message of Jesus to affect every single part of me. Would you put your hand up? I want to pray for you. And I see hands going up all over this place today. Could be in the way you love your spouse. It could be in the way you forgive. Could be in the way you serve. I want to pray for you. Maybe you would be honest and admit that like some in the church of Galatia, you're just confused. Maybe it's just not all clear to you how Jesus saves and what your role is. And you just need some help. I'd like to pray for you too. Would you put your hand up? I'm just just not sure I get it. I'd like to pray for you. Let's pray together this morning. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a God who's so good.